We've been to some extraordinary places on folk on foot, but this one is perhaps the most extraordinary. We took a plane from London to Inverness. We drove for three hours north, and we've come to the very edge of Britain, to the very edge of Scotland, where you just fall off the edge into the sea, to a place called Sandwood Bay. And this bay, a place of special scientific interest, a place of great beauty, is the inspiration for today's Folk on Foot guest. We're here at Sandwood Bay to meet the Scottish fiddle player and composer Duncan Chisholm, who was inspired by these amazing surroundings to write his last album, simply entitled Sandwood. We're going on a journey to walk to the beach, to see the sea, the bird life, the natural world, and to hear why Duncan finds this such an inspiring place. Good morning, Duncan. Good morning to you, Matthew. It is absolutely spectacular here, isn't it? Isn't it? Blue sky, sunshine. It's It's always like this in the north of Scotland. Always. Yeah. Always. It's (laughs) It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you and to show you Sandwood V. I can't wait. Let's get walking. Despite the sun and the blue sky, there's quite a wind. You've got your hat on. And your sunglasses. Yes, I'm perfectly kitted out for this day. Have you got uh, your fiddle on your back? And a kite. <laughs> a kite would be perfect. <laughs> Tell us what drew you here in the first place. I had heard about Sandwood Bay many times, what an amazing place it was. And so I just decided to take a trip one day, uh, no idea of making music or anything like that, just decided to, to go and see for myself what it was like. And it's about a four mile walk from here to the beach, isn't it? It is, yes. It's about four and a half miles and it takes usually around about an hour and 20 minutes. So you have to make a journey to get there. It's what I always call the pilgrimage out to the beach. And that indeed is the first track on your album that was inspired by Sandwood Bay. Yeah, it feels like because you have to make this effort to get out there, it does feel like you're heading on a religious pilgrimage sometimes to go to Sandwood. It felt like that for me. And a lot of people say that this journey out is quite a boring trip, but I've never found it like that. There's so much to see here on the moorland. And of course, at the end of it, you've got the spectacular journey's end. It's through some beautiful sceneries. There's a little loch ahead of us. There's heather on either side. And there's a loch actually to the left too. And you can see the white caps of the waves being whipped up by the wind. And then in the distance, you can see mountains. It's as if somebody's done a painting here, isn't it? And they put those in as the backdrop. (laughs) That's right. Over there, you've got Ben Hope and then Arkle over there as well. The terrain here is actually, it's, it's quite incredible that the, the mountains just appear right out of the ground. Less so, the further south you go, you're more into ranges of mountains, but they stand alone, these monuments, they're just incredible. 
and the mountains against the sky today because the sky is so blue. They're a sort of blue-grey silhouette with little flecks of snow on the top of them. And there's just the odd wisp of white cloud here, but mostly it's blue. And the colours are so vivid today. Just, just amazing. The air here as well. The air is so pure. There's no pollution in it at all. It's like an injection of pure adrenaline, actually, yeah. to breathe this air. <laughs> I suddenly find my senses come to life. Yeah. And I feel younger and fitter than yes. I did when I left London. That's right, yeah. You are. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> here which historically would have been populated but it uh, hasn't really been populated since around about the mid-1800s since the Highland clearances so we're heading into wilderness really here you might meet some wildlife though might oh, you definitely yes yeah it's an incredible place for nature of all sorts we'll see the carcass of a whale out on the beach there are otters there are multitudes of birds it's a, it's a wondrous place out here there is no time. Time is our imagination. Past, present and future. Places like Sandwood are where you lose your bearings but find new ones. The weather, the light, all the surprises you. You cast off everything from the modern world here. You know, wisdom sits here. When you were making the album, how many times did you come here? I came out uh, eight times, and the idea really was to come out and film and take photographs in different weathers and different lights, and try and take those experiences that I had back. I think the, the process of piecing together any creative project like this is immersion. I think it was uh, Thomas Carlyle that said, if you look deep enough, you will see music. And immersion for me is the real key, is being in this place and experiencing all the weathers that it could throw at you and different visual stimulus. I don't think you can emotionally connect and tell people about a place like this until you've experienced it in all its forms. So, so did you come up here in some pretty hairy weather? Yes, some amazing weather, some amazing storms. But a lot of the creative process was from memory. So when you piece a, a melody together, I tend to look at 
the analogy of painting a picture, the melody is always the sketch and then the colour that you put in is the instrumentation and the chordal progressions and the arrangements, that's the colour and then the final brush strokes are the way you play it on the fiddle or the way that someone might play it a piece on the cello. I see it as a, a multi-layered picture. And do you start to hear the music whilst you're here or do you go back and allow the experience to mull over in your mind before you start to write? Uh, sometimes you get a glimpse of a, a melody maybe. I certainly did with a tune walking in here on a very beautiful summer's morning with no wind a tune called Dizzy Blue and we have an amazing cobalt blue sky here today and it was exactly the same that June morning but everyone knows these kind of mornings when you're here early and nature is just flourishing around you and it's, you feel really full of life and I got the glimmer of this tune in my head and um, the title Dizzy Blue comes from a Norman McKay poem called Summer Farm, which, as I remember it, it talks about swallows leaving a barn and heading out into the dizzy blue. And it's exactly the way I felt. It was like total freedom and being part of this uh, wondrous landscape that we're in. Duncan, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of your earlier work because I think you did a trilogy of albums that were about your family history and the, your family's place in Scotland. Yes, the paternal line of my family has been in the Strathglass area for about 800 years and there are three glens, three valleys that run off Strathglass, which is the main valley heading west and they are Glenstrathfader, Glencanic and Glenafric. And I started the trilogy back in 2008 with the recording of the Farrer album and the, the really soundscapes to these places. The way I see them, the history and the stories all kind of shape the sound of these albums. And what did you find out about your family history? Well, in the Canic album, there's a tune called Kraski, which is a small township of only a handful of houses back in the 1800s and there's only two houses there now and that's where the paternal side of my family was in 1850 and between 1805 and 1850 there was a massive clearance of chisms from Strathglass 
to make way for sheep farming. Is that part of the Highland Clearances? That's part of the Highland Clearances, yeah. And our family got to stay because Kraski was owned by the daughter of a previous chief, a Mary Chisholm, who was very much against the deportation of her own people out of Strathglass. Because of that, my forebears were allowed to stay. And what were your family? Were they farmers? No, historically, since the clearances, they've been gamekeepers. In the Victorian era, shooting estates became very popular. And the, the main employment really was gillying or gamekeeping. My grandfather was a gamekeeper, my great-grandfather, his father before him. Was there any music in your family line? Actually, I didn't know this until maybe about 10 years ago, but my great-grandfather played the fiddle. My great-uncle played the fiddle as well, but I never heard them play. I just had a love for the sound from a, a very early age, and I wasn't really forced into it at all or anything. I just said I, I wanted to play the fiddle, and I guess it, it must be in the blood somewhere. Yes. <laughs> and being connected to that lineage and finding that lineage in a sense of place seems to be part of your inspiration. Is, is, is that correct, you know, that you're connected th- to a place through your family? Yes. I think it's important to everyone. Uh, every human that's born needs to feel connected to some place or other, I think. And it's certainly very important to me. It gives me grounding. And uh, it's actually it's a wonderful thing to live within Scotland at the moment and be an artist in Scotland because we have this thousand years of history and culture behind us. I see it as two lines that go in parallel. We have the tradition that stays constant throughout this mountain of music. It's such a rich past. And now we have the separate line that is constantly creating and moving in new directions. And one line can't really survive without the other. You're part of the tradition, but you're creating a new tradition That's right. on top of it, building on that foundation. It's an organic growth that has to keep on continuing and being able to fly off from that in different directions. It's the same, same for your connection to the land and and your forebears. I think it gives you solidity and I'm very fortunate in that respect. I know you've got children of your own now. Do you think you'll pass on the musical genes to them? I hope so. They're 10 and 7 and they both play the piano and they both enjoy it. And the youngest is just announced without prompting, I might add, that he wants to play the fiddle. So, So I'd love that. Will you encourage him? Of course, yes. Yeah, Would you sure. teach him? Because obviously it's famously not a good idea for no. fathers to teach their sons to drive. That's right. Would you, <laughs> That's would, right. Would you teach I, him to play the fiddle? I think the same probably goes for the fiddle. Of course I would be there every step of the way. But I think we'll try and find a teacher first because it's uh, that uh, teaching relationship can be fraught with danger. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it can cause all sorts of tensions in the family home. I think so. I think so. But uh, no, I, I would be there to show him everything that I know when he wanted to know it.
We can see a sort of sheep pen, a, a ruined sheep pen down there to the right. Do you think we might find some shelter there? Yeah, we might get a tune there maybe. Oh, Do you fancy that looks like a good spot? That would be great. There's actually a sheep's carcass here, which looks as though it's been torn. Salvaged by the beast of Sandwich. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of wool spread about and the walls are, are covered in lichen and tumbling down as we climb into this sheep pen. But we might just get a bit of shelter from the breeze. You've got the fiddle there. A, a quick word about the fiddle. Yes. You take it out of its case. My fiddle is German from Mittenwald in Bavaria, made in around about 1790. The Mittenwald factory were the first production line of fiddle makers and so not one fiddle maker but a series of master craftsmen making these wonderful instruments so the value is not huge of it but to me it's priceless it's part of me now and when you get to know an instrument you get to know all its little nuances and it's a two-way connection that you have between your instrument I think. And with uh, the fiddle it's very physical too because it's right there under your Yes. Chin, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's really close to you. You can feel the vibration. And the, the instrument is a very vocal instrument. You can listen to a fiddle player and almost know their character from the way they play it and the way it sounds. It's a very personal thing. And there are different styles of fiddle playing from different parts of Scotland? Yes. When I was growing up, it was a very localised style. So Where were you? I was brought up just west of Inverness about eight miles west of Inverness, and I was brought up with a very Highland fiddle style. And how do you distinguish a Highland fiddle style? Uh, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> Maybe you'd the, have to show us. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the style is very lyrical, based quite heavily on a lot of pipe tunes, a lot of Gaelic melodies. The fiddle style in Scotland has changed quite a bit over the 40 years since I started playing. When I was learning at the very beginning if you heard a fiddle player you'd be able to tell where he was from or where she was from and these fiddle styles used to change from village to village and you'd have two towns uh, that would have distinct fiddle styles and the the village in between those two would be a mixture of the two <laughs> and just like an accent would change in the same way so and yeah. who was it who taught you it was a man called donald riddle he was in his 70s when he taught me. He was a great historian. He had a, an amazing life, actually. He, he served in World War II as a pipe major in the Lovett Scouts. And uh, going for lessons with Donald was like going for a history lesson as well. So when he give you a tune, it wouldn't be notes on the page. He would tell you where the tune was made, why it was made, what it was made for. And I think that gave me Right off the bat, it gave me a visual look at things. Tunes became three-dimensional because of that. He would say there was a, there was a tune called Mrs. MacDonald of Danach. It was written by a, a legendary piper called Willie Laurie, who sadly died in the First World War. But he used to work in the slate quarry in Balahulish, and the, the tune... Uh, I'll play it for you. Yeah. So uh, the tune is a very simple pipe march. It goes... That's the start of it. And Donald said Willie Laurie was in the quarry in Balahulish and he played. And the echo came back. And then. 
and he could hear the echo of the of the slate quarry and the tune came to him then and he would tell you things like that and you would immediately imagine Willie Laurie playing the chanter in the, in the slate in quarry the place, in yes. Ballahoolish yes. and that way of thinking about music has never left me you know, it's it's always got to have three dimensions. It can never be just notes on a piece. It's so interesting you should say that, because when we were with, with uh, Julie Faldis, she was showing me a map that she'd made of the area around Loch Ness through songs and stories. Yes. So she placed the songs and stories in the landscape, and yes. that's how she navigated her way through the landscape by yes. the songs and stories. And she said in, in North Uist, it was almost second nature to her when she went back there. Yes. And, and so that sense of music in the landscape is obviously something in common between some different musicians. It's all connected. It's all connected. Music and the way that we put out our emotions is all connected to what's around us, you know. And language is, is no different to music. When you perform this music on stage, what's going through your mind? I have a visual view in my mind. When so you I'm on can stage. see Sandwood. As I can play. see Sandwood, and I can with the other the other music in the back catalogue. I've always had a a visual in my head, so I'm in the same place every time. No matter if I was performing at the Royal Concert Hall in Glasgow or if I was in Edinburgh Hall in Sky, I would still be in the same place, and uh, I visit it very regularly. So away to our right, there's this rather beautiful loch. Is that part of the inspiration behind the next piece of music you're going to play for us? It is partly. It's a beautiful loch, Sandwood Loch, and it's a place where the Vikings used to drag their longboats across the, the beach here at Sandwood, and they would take them in there to shelter. I would call it a lagoon. When the wind's not blowing, it's mirror-like. It's absolutely beautiful. But the real inspiration behind this tune is a Seamus Heaney poem called the otter and there are otters here at Sandwood Loch although I've never seen them I think we'll see them today Matthew. <laughs> and why it, this poem well this poem the first verse of it describes an otter diving into water and it's a beautiful description of light in water he says when you plunged the light of Tuscany wavered and swung through the pool from top to bottom and I just love that the light of Tuscany was born from that When you plunged, the light of Tuscany wavered and swung through the pool from top to bottom. I loved your wet head and smashing crawl, your fine swimmers back and shoulders surfacing and surfacing again this year and every year since. I sat dry-throated on the warm stones, you were beyond me, the mellowed clarities, the great deep air, thinned and disappointed. Thank God for the slow loading. When I hold you now, we are close and deep as the atmosphere on water. My two hands are plumbed water. You are my palpable, lithe otter of memory in the pool of the moment, turning to swim on your back, each silent thigh-shaking kick, retilting the light, heaving the cool at your neck, 
and suddenly you're out, back again, intent as ever, heavy and frisky in your freshened pelt, printing the stones. Seamusini is one of my all-time heroes. In musical terms, they used to say that Steve Vai, the guitar player, could make a thousand notes sound like one, and B.B. King could make one note sound like a thousand. And that's, for me, Seamusini in a nutshell. He would make one word sound like a thousand. Incredible writer. So Duncan is, is blowing a lot now, but we've just come round a corner for the first sight of the beach, which is spectacular. The, the white sand of the beach and the blue of the ocean getting darker out there yeah. is so gorgeous. Does it lift your spirits when you come round this corner? It does, it really does. And there's nothing between that beach and America. It's uh, straight out, uh, wild Atlantic. It's just great, it's so bracing, it's wonderful. So the view's really opening out in front of us now, and I think we can see Cape Wrath over there, can't we? That's right. Just over the top of that bit of ground there, you've got the Cape Wrath lighthouse just popping up, and you've got thousand-foot cliffs. That end, quite extraordinary bit of landscape. Before the lighthouse was built, around about 1830, it was an extremely dangerous piece of water. It still is extremely dangerous, but fortunately there's been no wrecks since the lighthouse has been built there, but historically, wrecks would uh, founder on Cape Wrath and then get washed up on Sandwood. So I read a book called Highland Ways and Byways by a man called Seton Gordon. It was written in the 1930s, and in that, he reckoned that there was dozens of wrecks underneath the sand at Sandwood. How he ever knew, I, I, I will not know, but he, he claimed there was a Viking longship under the sand here as well. Do people sometimes feel 
spirits around here, ghosts? A lot of people do feel a dark presence here. I've never felt it. All my visits here, I felt nothing but at home here, at complete peace here. But there are people that uh, have said they've felt their description is as if a haze has crossed the sun. On a, br- the sun. on a bright summer's day. Sounds like the title of one of your songs. It is, actually. Yeah. <laughs> one of your pieces. <laughs> it is. But um, I, I don't know. I think you come out here and the earth is stripped back. Nature is in its full presence. And maybe that makes some people feel uncomfortable. There are talk of ghost sailors and mermaids. There was a mermaid spotted here in 1900 by a man called Gan. And until his death in 1940, he stuck to his story. Well, let's get down to the beach then and see if we can see one. Let's go. (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) Mermaid hunting. (laughs) So we're walking through the dunes now and the white sand is underfoot and... The wind is blowing through these pale, pale grasses, which are waving. It looks like actually waves of water as you look at the grasses. And the white sand is opening up in front of us towards the breakers just coming in. And there's some rocks to the right. But it's just the most beautiful place that I've been for many, many years with the sand undulating down the green and blue of the sea and a blue sky with just the flecks of white cloud as we walk down towards the beach it's almost as if nobody else has ever been here I know that's not true, I know it's a a mirage but you can't see any footsteps in the sand apart from ours yeah. it's great isn't it yeah absolutely it's your beach today <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge beach isn't it it is a huge beach uh, i'm not sure the the entire length of it i think it's it's, it's, it's definitely a mile long anyway and uh, at the moment uh, there's no one on it apart from ourselves which is fantastic oh there's the sea stack is that the... Ambuakil, it's... Um, the shepherd? Yeah, the herdsman, that's right. I think called that because of the white waves beneath it, the sheep flocking at its feet. Just a great big straight outcrop of rock coming up out of the sea, isn't it? It's about 240 feet high and the colour of dried blood. And do, do people climb up that sea stack? They have done, yes. But you have to swim out to it first, <laughs> uh, which uh, that in itself... I couldn't do. It's a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> and then you have to climb 240 feet up it, and uh, that can't be for the faint-hearted. No. Absolutely not. Shall we walk down to the sea's edge? Yeah. We can hear the waves. weather coming in here can be incredible it's beautiful today but uh, you can imagine it on a really stormy night there's no be... shelter no there's no. nowhere to hide is there if a storm comes it must in be amazing air. it must be amazing
my co-writer on a lot of the music we created for Sandwood, Hamish Napier. He visited once, he took about a thousand photos. The day that he was here, he took this amazing panorama south from Ambuachal up to the cliffs of Cape Wrath. And Ambuachal was framed in blue sky and Cape Wrath was framed in blue sky. And in the middle was this incredible blackness and it, there was even red tinge to it. And it was this incredible storm that was coming in. And I loved the photo so much. It had a real symmetry to it. And it was the inspiration for one of the tracks on the album called Haze Across the Sun. I'd love to hear it. Right you are. Okay. <laughs> Spitfire crash-landed here in 1941. The pilot was a man called Michael Kilburn who survived and came out completely uninjured. Every time I've come up to Sandwood I've looked for the wreckage of the Spitfire, which apparently if the tide's out at a certain place you can see parts of the wreckage. You know, I always think the past is really part of the present when you're here at Sandwood. You've got three billion year old rock there. You've got a Spitfire that came down whatever it was 78 years ago in World War II. You've possibly got a Viking longship under the beach here. But here we are in 2019, we're sitting here and we're part of the story as well. It's a great sense when you're here that the past and the present are one, you're combining it, you know, we're drawing our mark in the sand here as well, just by being here, by playing tunes here, or talking, or visiting, and that's a wonderful thing to think about, to be part of that history. I think as instrumental musicians, we have a, maybe the advantage of, of being able to try and put into music what maybe words can't, how you feel in a place, you know, and try and put that across to your audience. That's happened historically in, in classical music. People like Vaughan Williams, uh, you know, The Lark Ascending, it takes you exactly to a place. In my mind it does. Sibelius does it with Finlandia. You know, and it really interests me, that sense of place through music and instrumental music in particular how that passes on between the artist and, and the audience. What is that? The wind in the violin. Is it? It is that. Wow. That's amazing. Have you ever heard that before? Never heard it before. As if there's a ghostly violinist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
That's amazing. <laughs> The ancient pagan Celts used to call places like Sandwood thin places. They were places where the distance between heaven and earth was very short. And I think Sandwood is exactly that. You get a glimpse not of heaven but earth as it truly is. Unencumbered, unmasked, beautiful. Thank you.
That's such an evocative tune, Duncan. Is it, is it one of yours? It's not, unfortunately. It's a tune written by a friend of mine called Donald Shaw, who's a wonderful composer and had a, a, a major uh, part of the production of Sandwood, the album. And uh, every time I came up to Sandwood during my eight trips up here, I would listen to that tune in the dunes here. And it was such a, a major part of the story, my story of Sandwood, that I asked Donald if I'd be able to record it for the album. And I'm so glad it's on the album because, as I say, it was a, it was a major part of my story here. It's called a precious place, isn't it? It's called a precious place, and I think it grabs the the feeling of what it's like to be in a special place. Every time I play that tune, I feel as if I'm in Sandwood. I could be performing in America or Spain, or whatever. Whenever I play that tune on stage, I'm back here in Sandwood, and I think. It resonates with a lot of people and every person has a special place. Everyone's got a precious place that they can go to when they hear beautiful music. And uh, this is my precious place. And yeah, I'm glad to share it with you. Oh, and, uh, we're so grateful to you for sharing it with us. What a joy it has been to be here with you and to hear your music oh, on very... this location. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Duncan Chisholm at Sandwood Bay. And thanks to Faber and Faber and FSG Publishers for allowing us to use Seamus Heaney's poem, The Otter. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe or follow us to make sure you get all our episodes just as soon as they're launched. And please rate and review us so others can find us. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation to help us produce more wonderful episodes, you can become a patron by going to folkonfoot.com and clicking on Support Us. We'd really appreciate it if you did. There are five other episodes in season three of Folk on Foot featuring the Unthanks on the Northumberland coast, the Lost Words Spell Songs with Jackie Morris and Beth Porter in Pembrokeshire, Martin Simpson in Scunthorpe, Lisa Knapp in Tooting and John Smith in Brixham. And the 12 episodes of seasons one and two featuring more amazing artists are still there if you haven't heard them yet. To keep up with the latest information, you can sign up for our newsletter at folkonfoot.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram with the handle at folkonfoot. We hope you enjoy listening to Folk on Foot just as much as we love making it. <laughs>